0: I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Bill Porter, who publishes with the name Red Pine. This is our second episode with Bill. In the last episode, he talked about translating stone house poems and how translation is a kind of a dance. Now, Bill has published so many books, I'm not going to even try to list them. I'll just say, go to Goodreads and put in his name, and you'll get a long list of titles. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Bill's work with the poems of Han Shan, also known as Cold Mountain, and also the project that he began back in 1989 of searching for hermits in the mountains of China to interview them, see what their views are, and partially, he tells us, to verify that they're really there. Maybe we should move on and do a little uh, a little Han Shan now. What do you say?
1: I'd I'd love to.
0: Okay, maybe maybe as a transition we can talk a little bit about hermits. You you uh, went in search of hermits, and uh, as I said, I listened to some of your interviews and other things. But um, I don't think uh, you mentioned what what did the hermits tell you, and and what was your. You said you tried to get a Guggenheim in a court. They didn't go for it. But what did you tell them your your point was, your purpose of you're going to go find these hermits and interview them?
1: What did I tell the Guggenheim? Yeah. Or what did I tell the hermits?
0: I, didn't. <laughs> I was thinking ahead of time, what, what was your goal? What did you kind of, did you have expectations? Or was it totally, what are these guys up to and I'm just going to find out?
1: Well, you see, the, the reason I wanted to find hermits was i i translated the poetry of Han Shan who was a hermit and Stonehouse who was a hermit and i wondered do people like this really exist is this a literary fiction um, oh. you know and what what would it be like to be a, a hermit in china And so i applied to the guggenheim for uh, you know for the money to go do that um and uh, I was working at the time at, at a English language radio station in Taiwan. And one of my things was to translate all the top stories from the Chinese press every day, but also I would interview dignitaries. And um, one of the people I was interviewing about the time I applied to the Guggenheim was uh, Winston Wong, Wong Winyang, who was the son of the richest man in Taiwan. He was the CEO of the world's largest plastics company, Formosa Plastics. And so at some point, uh, uh, we finished the interview, and I, I thought I'd ask Winston if he'd ever seen the movie The Graduate. And uh, <laughs> he, he said he had. And I said, so what would you tell a graduate today? And I was expecting plastics on plastics. But he said, I would tell him to follow the Dow. And I was very impressed with that answer. He wasn't talking about the Dow Jones, of course. He was talking about uh, what right. the Chinese call the way, the way of, of life. Um, and so I said, that's you know interesting answer. And we, we chatted a little, and I, I told you know, this is probably my last interview because um, I've applied to the Guggenheim to go to China to find hermits because I've translated the poetry of the hermits. And he said, well, if they don't give you the money, I will. And, of course, they didn't, and he did. Wow. He um, just called. I, I called him up a couple weeks later after I got the rejection letter, and and he said, "Well, how much do you need?" And I said, "Well, maybe about five thousand dollars." And he said, well, you want that in cash or travelers' checks?" <laughs> he took it out of petty cash that day cause, what, you know what a great yeah. guy, yeah. And um, well, he did the same thing a few years later when I wanted to go up the Yellow River. Same sort of thing. I was going to head back to America for good. And I said, there's one more trip I'd, I'd like to make. and He said, what's that? I said, I'd like to explore the origins of Chinese culture and travel up the Yellow River. And he, again, he wanted to know how, how much I needed. And I said, it's going to be about three months, and I'll probably need about $9,000. And he just said, come down this afternoon, and I'll give you the give you the traveler's checks.
0: Oh, that's
1: great. He was a, a really a great support when I uh, really had no other means to indulge myself in looking for hermits. But I... I went to China with his money, and I asked an American uh, A friend of mine, who was a photographer, to come with me. And the money allowed him to get his his camera out of Hawk and get, pay for his plane ticket to uh, to Hong Kong. And we met and went to went to China looking for hermits. I had no idea where I was going to find a hermit. Where are you going to? Where's a hermit? Obviously in the <laughs> mountains, but which mountain? Um, but I just happened to you know started. In Beijing, and I I met this this monk who was a deputy director of the of the Buddhist Association in, in China, and and he just happened to blurt out, you know, um, yeah, I've heard, I think I've I've heard some hermits in, in the Jiongnan Mountains south of Sian, and um, so uh, I went down there. I went down to Sian, and I didn't know. Uh, it turned out once I got down there that the Jiongnan Mountains is not just one mountain, but it's a it's a mountain range 800 kilometers from east to west. Uh, and 200 kilometers north to south. So I just hired a taxi driver to take me and Steve, my my photographer friend, to the foot of the mountains, and uh, and you know a particular mountain that looked pretty good from a distance. So let's go there, and uh, of course it was illegal to go into the mountains in China. Foreigners were not allowed anywhere near uh, things like that. So I I just told the fat taxi driver to let me off and, and uh, come back in two days which which she did and uh, we hiked into the mountains and within a, about 3 or 4 hours uh we were writing down hermit addresses we had, you know we met met monks and they would uh draw little pictures in the dirt or, or or on a scrap of paper if they had one about how to how to find the trail to this hermit or that hermit and it turns out the jungnan mountains were like the the hermit central in china because the mountains were directly south of of the ancient capital of Chang'an, which was the capital of many of China's dynasties. And that's usually where hermits lived. They usually lived uh, up in the mountains, not too far away from a a center of civilization. Hmm. Um, They had a relationship with with people. And that was the amazing thing I found out about Chinese hermits is they're not like our hermits. Our our hermits are misanthropes. They're people who want to be left alone, um, who don't necessarily like people. And the Chinese hermits are just the opposite. They're, they're in the mountains for a purpose. They're trying to understand something. Um, obviously, and for a Buddhist to become enlightened, a Taoist to become immortal. But the idea is, is to help others. And so uh, most hermits only spend three to five years in the mountains. It's like going to graduate school. <laughs> the average hermit is three to five years. Lots of hermits don't make it past the first winter. And, mm-hmm. and maybe 5% of the hermits will stay there 20 years because they just like it mm-hmm. that much. But most hermits go up for until they feel that they've learned, they've got something. They've got something out of the mountains, and they go back down. And uh, you cannot find a, a teacher of any note in Buddhist, whether a Buddhist or a Taoist or a Confucian. You cannot find anybody of note who has not been a hermit. It's wow. where they got graduate degree it's it's like this i describe it like this it's where you get your voice up to that point you're just repeating what your teachers told you what's in a book you start spending time alone you start coming up with your own words and uh, three to five years seems to be about it wow. so anyway i went in the mountains found all these hermits and i found of course a bunch in the junan mountain south of seon and then went to uh, a few other places in china found hermits but um after uh well while we were coming down one mountain we we heard about the events at Tiananmen and uh we decided we better leave china we went back to taiwan for a few months and then decided uh this was too important a project just to to hide out in taiwan so we went back this time Winston couldn't give me any more money cuz he said he was in bed with the chinese government you know he having the world's biggest plastics business going so he said he he was afraid that I my project would 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 be bad press for him. So, mm. I was on my own. But uh, but anyway, he eventually he gave me nine thousand to go up the Yellow River. So he he was still supportive. It's just that particular time was very sensitive in China. Wow. Um. Anyway, Steve and I went back to China. We went back and we just chose the Jungnan Mountains to do all of our so-called research. I, I took a tape recorder with me, and I would go meet these hermits. Uh, meet new ones I didn't know and, and re- revisit the old ones I had already met. And I'd put the tape recorder on the table and ask them questions about stuff, but not as a journalist, just as somebody who wants to say hello. Yeah. And that's pretty much all we did. I didn't do it as an ethnography or yeah. with any journalistic seriousness. Right. It was just me being amazed that there were these people, and they were so amazing, they were so happy, and they had nothing and yet they were, they were doing what I wanted to do, you know, to, to practice the Dharma. So I ended up writing this book uh, called Road to Heaven, mm-hmm. and it was published in 1993, um, and it's still in print in America. And uh, every year I think it sells about 500 copies in America, mm-hmm. but uh, in China it has sold over a million copies. Wow. In, wow. sold two hundred thousand in the last six months.
0: Whoa!
1: Because the, the, that's the, amazing. The, the,
0: yeah
1: yeah the that's the Chinese have sort of discovered my work and and this work in, in particular uh, excites them. Be, you know, partly because they see themselves doing that because uh, you know for many for for decades they weren't allowed to make money or to, to indulge in comforts, you might say, and now that's that. They all they all have money everybody's got a little money um, well not everybody but yeah. enough people so anybody who's educated uh, develops uh, some kind of a lifestyle whereby they have they finally have a roof over their heads you know they have nice clothes and they well, maybe they take trips to Europe uh, mm-hmm. but there's a great mass of people in China who are so dissatisfied with with being satisfied <laughs> and uh, right. my book came over a- and a lot of people use that book uh, to go into the mountains as their, sort of their guide to uh, to the mountains, which is sort of, and I tell them, and I've told journalists this in China when I get interviewed, that that's not about what the hermit life is about, because yeah. it's, a, it's a PhD program. It's, it's not a lark. Um, you know, you go into the mountains, and you're going to be a hermit, well, as soon as the weather gets cold or you get sick or you don't have enough to eat you know so then that that's the end of that and when and if it is the end of that you'll never go back up up again because you'll have this bad attitude towards yeah. towards seclusion
0: yeah it's not trivial because was, you mentioned that one of the things you would do to find hermits is to ask is anybody cultivating the Dao this yes, mountain <laughs>
1: yeah and, and that, everybody understands that phrase yeah Know, and, and I'm talking about farmers, uh, herb collectors. Everybody knows what, what you're talking about. That, and they know that it's more than just Taoists, because mm-hmm. Chinese don't really distinguish Buddhists and Taoists that much. Uh, especially the farmers and 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 hill people in the hills don't. They're all spiritual seekers. And they know what you're talking about. Sure. And uh, and they're, but there, there are very very few hermit mountains in China. I'd say. One fewer than one percent of the mountains in China have hermits on them. Mm-hmm. It's sort of certain mountains have have been considered as having being spiritually potent in some way, oh. um, and of course that it means that there's got to be uh, firewood, and they oh. don't cut down trees, so they're relying totally on deadfall. And there's got to be water, you know, springs sure. and. and um, and it, and it you know and nowadays of course a lot of these places have been overrun with tourists and so a lot of the hermit mountains are no longer hermit mountains but the jungnan mountains still are
0: yeah well well and, and hanshan uh at, at least what i've read in the books you know is is not completely in seclusion because he would go down and and apparently visit some monastery that was nearby yeah uh, 20... once in a while and
1: yeah. away, though. It was a you know a couple hours walk, a good day walk to to the mountain or to the monastery. Oh. So he he most likely he spent his winters at the monastery, and the the rest of the year um, you know and at this cave.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great that you have a picture. And he, of the and cave. He, and and he lived in these are flat
1: lands though. Some people like you know like to do artist rep, representations of where he lived high up in the mountains, but it's not. It's just. Uh, His 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 cave was just above a a a big plain of uh, of cornfields, bean fields, Um, but it was a cave up you know a big rocky bluff and a a big cave inside.
0: Yeah, well, let's hear a couple of his poems. Okay. You mentioned when you first started um, with with him. When you first started with him, you had the advantage of Burton Watson's translations, or at least the assistance of them. I guess, to, yeah. give, to give you ideas about how it might go in English. Was he there at Columbia when you were there? Or no. You, were you no, North? he oh. was
1: already living in Japan pretty oh. much permanently. Oh, okay. he, he used to come back usually to America every year for maybe a month uh, mm-hmm. just to see some family members and to check in, maybe maybe to ransack the well, a library or something at like oh. Columbia. Um, oh. But no, he he was already gone. So I never, I've never met him. We've corresponded, uh, but um, but I, I never, I never met him. Mm. Um, and but it was just the abbot when I was living at this monastery in Taiwan. The abbot self-published Cold Mountain's poetry. He made he financed a, a an edition with a, a Chinese local scholar had done a, a simple commentary, and then they pirated Burton Watson's English translations and stuck them at the back. Huh because, of course, in Taiwan and back in the 70s, they didn't care about piracy. Right. So anyway, I, I had all, the complete edition of yeah. Cole Mountain's poems, and I'd heard about them, you know, from uh, from the Jack Kerouac book, Dharma Bums, sure. and from Gary Snyder's translations. Right. So I I knew about them, but I never had seen them for myself. So here I had the Chinese, and I also had an English translation by a, a very competent scholar of one-third of the poems. Yeah. So I w- I was able to begin, Looking at the poems and working on translations by by checking in with with, with how Watson had done them because when you're first translating you you you're going to need some help and mm-hmm. the more help the better um so right. burton Watson's translations were were a great aid Super. um but then that's although though he only translated uh, one third and I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of do them all so um I just got off on my own and just did them yeah it took took a a, a long time and and then I finally, an American who was living in Taiwan came to visit me one day and said he had heard I was working on Coal Mountain, and he wondered if I needed a publisher. And I said, well, yeah. And he introduced me to Copper Canyon Press living uh, here in Port Townsend, sure. where I still live, where I live now. Yeah. So they, they published Coal Mountain in, a, it was 83. And um, like I said, the, my Coal Mountain Book had some Stonehouse poems in it, so I just kept going and did Stonehouse, and and I started self-publishing these these series of books through my friends, who, who uh, here in the Port Townsend area, mm-hmm. a press called Empty Bowl, and uh, never intended to do anything more than that. But you know, once you start developing a not just a skill but a, 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 a an art in, that it just captivates you, I, I uh, I've never been able to stop translating. Mm-hmm. So well, here's a coal mountain poem. People ask a way to coal mountain, but roads don't reach coal mountain. In summer, the ice doesn't melt. Sunny days, the fog is too dense. So how did someone like me arrive? Our minds are not the same. If they were the same, you would be here.
0: I love that poem, and I love all the translations of it.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. I guess the
0: sentiment of it is just. Yeah, so good.
1: Uh, here's a here's a short one, uh, a four-liner. My mind is like the autumn moon, clear and bright in a pool of jade. Nothing can compare. What more can I say? Mm. Sometimes just words just get in your way.
0: Well, the other That's thing ab- one. about other thing about this style of poems, how they just they're focused, and they just say what they say
1: yeah, he had a, he had a message he wanted to deliver. He wasn't uh, being fancy,
0: yeah.
1: um, and that's why the Chinese have pretty much ignored his poetry because it's not fancy. There's no uh, literary gizmos you know, mm. impress you about his how erudite he was, and and his his rhymes often are a little bit off. Because they had standard not just the rhyme but the tones. Hmm. His tones, his tones were uh, were often not what what uh, was expected.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So they they, they they didn't sound great to the literary uh, crowd in China. But he was the first uh, poet of any significance who wrote in the vernacular that is anybody can read his poems and understand them. that same cannot be said for Li Bai or Du Fu or Su uh-huh. Po. Well, here's, here's one. My, my home is below green cliffs. I don't cut weeds anymore. New vines spiral down. Ancient rocks stand straight up. Monkeys pick the wild fruit. Egrets spear the fish. One or two books by mortals I chant beneath the trees. So, you know, he's, uh, nobody knows anything about Cold Mountain, in fact, he's the only poet of any significance that nobody knows his real name. Wow. He was probably on the lamb from the—there uh, was a revolution, in a rebellion, I should say, in, in uh, 755. And he probably was a, a minor official for the losing side. That was the An-Lushan Rebellion. And he probably came down to the mountains to hide out. I just picked up this name and, and stuck with it. Yeah. Uh, um, nobody knows for sure his dates, but probably he probably uh, was born around 735, and when the rebel re- rebellion began around 755, he was in his early twenties, and probably by the time it was over, he was in his mid thirties, and that's probably when he he came up to Coal Mountain, probably around around uh, seven seven. 6770 right in there mm-hmm. and people different people had left little notes uh, about having seen him as late as 850 um so mm-hmm. the, some people say he lived to be 120 um so he, he lived to be old and then he wrote these poems down um and somebody collected them um, the, the story is of course there's a, an official who came and was impressed by him, and then and collected all these poems he had left on rocks, and on temple walls, or trees, and it's quite possible that that's where he got the poems, but uh, um, somebody got them, and uh, so if, if Cold Mountain indeed uh, died or disappeared around 850, we actually have a woodblock printed edition from 960, Wow. So within a hundred years, he's already considered important by, by uh, by the Buddhists, but the Taoists also claimed him. So, um, he's he's either he, he, he you don't know whether he's a monk or a Taoist. He's sort of a free man, a man who just sort of takes the the best what he what, uh, that he can from mm-hmm. from from both of those spiritual traditions. And I think that's what attracted me to him, and attracts a lot of people to him. that uh, he he doesn't have an axe to grind, and he's he's not a partisan. He's just—he's just, he's just uh, the guy hanging out.
0: Just a serious seeker. Yeah, I think. Yeah,
1: he—he—he, he, he, uh, if he did come around 760, then he probably spent 80, 90 years, you know, on the, on the mountain, just writing poems. And 300 is not a lot for for that many years. That's only yeah. maybe f- five or six poems a year.
0: Yeah. Old, let's, hear, let's hear a few more before we uh, have to wrap it up.
1: Well, Luoyang was one of the old capitals in China, and that was the Luoyang was actually the uh, the capital of the of the rebels, and probably where he was serving as an official when when the rebels were defeated and he mm-hmm. headed south. It's a poem about Luoyang. In Luoyang, so many girls on a spring day show off their charms in groups picking roadside flowers, sticking them high in their hair. High in their hair, the flowers wind round. Someone speaks, and they all look down, looking elsewhere for a gentler love, or thinking of husbands at home.
0: Uh, And that's nice when he writes something about the, let's call it the outside world.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, Paul Mountain gets all the all the all the credit, but he had a companion of sorts who worked at the monastery, a man uh, who was an orphan, and he was he was picked up on the roadside, so people called him Chard de or uh, Pickup, and he also left some poems, um, only forty nine of them, but uh, you know, it's a nice little collection. And this is the last one, uh, yeah. Number 49 of, of Sure Does poems, Pickup's poem. And the, all of these are in this book uh, published by Copper Canyon, the, the Collected Songs of Coal Mountain. Woods and springs make me smile. No kitchen smoke for miles. Clouds rise up from rocky ridges. Cascades tumble down. A given's cry marks the way. A tiger's roar transcends mankind. Pine wind sighs so softly birds, discuss, sing song. I walk the winding streams and climb the peaks alone. Sometimes I sit on a boulder or lie and gaze at trailing vines. But When I see a distant town, all I hear is noise.
0: Well, that was a little longer than uh, than many of them.
1: Yeah, it's true. That was about 16 line poems. So, Eight, eight, eight is usually the, the standard length, but they do uh, the four line poems too and and 16 is not uncommon
0: yeah.
1: uh, But what, what is rare is just a long long poem. Uh, mm-hmm. We often in the English language nowadays people will write a poem that's 40 50 lines and and it's never composed with any idea of, of line of, of how many lines it'll just it just a poem goes till the poets out of, out of lines.
0: Yeah, really different. <laughs> well, these things, these are so, I'm so glad you're doing this. Are you, uh, are you Are you working on somebody new? Well, uh,
1: not really. I, have, I might, there's, there's a poet, that, that uh, a Zen monk poet that I've sort of been thinking of doing. But you know, what I've been doing now are these chapbooks. Uh-huh. I uh, just finished uh, translating the two uh, Pure Land Sutras to do a chapbook on uh, Pure Land Buddhism. Um,
0: yeah. Tell
1: a, Great. But, but there is a Zen monk who, dating back to the uh, the late Tang Dynasty that nobody's really know knows about in the West. But he yeah. was a, a major influence on on uh, Zen, on the development of Zen. His name is Yen Shou, but nobody knows him in the, in the West. Uh, other than scholars, there's there's, there's, there's scholars who, who in the West who who know uh-huh. about him, but. But anyway, wow. I'm just messing around these days. I'm, I'm, I will never write another book book. Okay. Uh, let's just say something that's going to take me a couple years yeah. and that'll be two or 300 pages long. Yeah. That'll never happen again.
0: Okay. Well, that's okay. I'll be on the lookout for the jet books. And I'm sure other, other people will too, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> They're all available at Empty Bowl Press.
0: There you go. Great. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Bill. This has really been wonderful. I have totally... Personally enjoyed myself, and I'm sure people listening are going to be really glad they listened to hear all these things you have to say. It's just great, well, and your, and your work is great. Well, thank you. All right, I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with Bill Porter, who publishes his translations using the pen name of Red Pine. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to Let Poetry Speak to You. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mondley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com poetryspokenhere.